Hi, I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for listening to this podcast. There are many more podcasts available at MyFaithRadio.com. Your support makes this possible. Thank you. And a warm welcome to the afternoon show. I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for joining me today. We've got a wonderful show planned because it's time for God Talk. Our guys who talk, and they're here. They're sitting around the studio looking at me with um, eager anticipation to answer your questions. So all you have to do to get things started is text your question over 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. Two four, eight four. My power panel today is Jeff Verdorn, Pastor Tom Parrish, and Doctor Greg Borgon. Gentlemen, good afternoon. Good afternoon, good afternoon Bill. Good afternoon. Nice good to have Bill. you here. We've got some great questions. Ones even coming in in advance, which I love. You can send questions for Guy Talk anytime you like. Doesn't have to be during the uh, segment. You can send them whenever it's convenient for you. And I collect them and get them ready to be answered. So the first one is a question that came in early, and it's this. Jesus tells us to love everyone. I love my husband. I love my kids. But I don't feel that sort of love for everyone. However, I do feel great compassion and empathy towards others. Is that the same thing as love? Or should I be feeling something more or something different than that? Please help me understand. When you take a look at at, uh, 1 Corinthians, uh, I mean, in the Greek there are, five to six words that describe different types of love. And the only love that's commanded by God is called agape or agapao, which is unconditional love. And here's what it means. It means having a genuine concern for the welfare and well-being of another individual, even if they're unlikable. In other words, it's action-oriented, it's Mm. others-oriented, you act in their best interest. And even when you, you practice that kind of love that's commanded... Over the course of time, when you act in somebody's best interest, you're going to find something emotionally lovable about them, but it doesn't start out that way. So what the um, the person that raised the question is addressing is, I think, conflating an emotional love that we feel for our children, our wives, our family, and that we're commanded to have that kind of love. And that's not what Scripture talks about. It talks about the agapao type of love, the unconditional love. I think the the uh, questioner is asking an excellent question. Being a pastor, doing a lot of marital counseling, I cannot tell you how many couples have been so deeply in love, you know, when they're heading up to their wedding, and then six <laughs> months later, that love isn't quite there anymore. And they asked me, where did it go? I said, well, you really didn't have as much love as you had lust and, you know, that type of thing. Love is a choice. You're going to make a choice to be like Jesus in loving these people with his power, even when you don't like them. And if you can do that in marriage, you can have a long marriage and a successful marriage. And like you said, Greg, the emotions will come back. And I've seen a lot of people's emotions come back into it. But you have to learn how to choose to love. And the Bible has a lot to say about that. Yeah, you know, there's some people in my life that I would argue I love them with the love of Christ. 
And, and that's about all I can muster, right? You don't necessarily have to emotionally like somebody or want to hang out with them, but are you willing? Do you wish that they not perish? Mm-hmm. Do you desire them well? Yes. Right. And and that is this agape or agapeo love that uh, that we're talking about. It's not an emotional based love and an, an infatuation. It is a like God demonstrated His love for us in this that while we are yet sinners. Christ died for us. He gave himself up for us. That self-sacrificial love is the love of God. And we should love one another. This is how you know the world will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. I've asked a lot of mothers uh, who have newborns, you know, when the fourth night in the row comes and it's 2 a.m. in the morning and you haven't slept and your baby's crying because they want to be fed or have their diaper changed, how much emotional love do you feel for that baby? And they've told me and over and over, well... Yeah, I love the baby, but I'm doing it out of duty because it's the right thing to do. And I said, welcome to biblical love. Mm -hmm. You do it because Jesus said to. The Hebrew word for love is ahava. And that is, biblically speaking, it's more than sentiment. It's action. Yes, Yes. action-oriented. Yeah, like you said, Greg, if you are action-oriented towards someone, you're doing a loving thing. You're loving someone with the actions that you take. Exactly right. And Jeff, your point's well taken as well. I mean, you... You may not have that sentimental love feeling towards somebody, but you can still have a good attitude towards them, and you can have loving actions towards them. Mm-hmm. I love it. Now, right. When you when you when you look at the at the passage that I was referring to uh, in terms of unconditional love, it's if it's First uh, um, Corinthians chapter thirteen. Verses uh, 4 through 8. And so in that passage, what it does is it tells you things that love is. It tells you thing that things that love is not. And it tells you things that love is regardless. Listen, listen to this passage, and you can pick out um, what I'm talking about here. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. And here's what it is all the time. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. So again, in that passage, it tells you exactly what it is. And as you mentioned, Bill, it's action-oriented. It's others-focused. And it's represented by um, uh, an attitude that produces a motive for engagement. I think this is such an important topic because I've done a lot of marital counseling in my 45 years. Here's what I've discovered. The most successful marriages I've seen are couples who are Christian, but their first 10 years were disasters. And I mean everything went wrong, including affairs. I mean, as bad as it can get. And yet, because they wanted to be know Jesus and serve him, they were willing to walk in forgiveness toward one another. And so he or she repented of what they had done. They were willing to forgive one another. And they could not let the emotions drive their attitude toward one another. They had to let their commitment toward Jesus drive that. And these are people who I have seen when they've now been married 45 and 50 years are still holding hands, still Mm -hmm. deeply love one another, still want to be together, even though most people would say it was a complete disaster in the beginning. Well, of course, because until we get the Lord's love most of us can't sustain the kind of love we have when we're 19 years old. Yeah, good word, Tom Parrish. All right, let's move on. Uh, it's time for your questions. Send them over, 877-933-2484.
877-933-2484. Got some great questions coming in. In Deuteronomy 17, 17 says, A king must not take many wives, but David had multiple wives and yet was considered a man after God's own heart. How could David justify this in his own heart and mind that he was going against the scriptures and against God's wishes in this respect? I realized that Solomon did this as well, which turned out to ultimately be his downfall. You mean someone in scripture did something contrary to the will of God? Yeah. Can you believe it? You can be a man after God's heart because you love him, you want to follow his ways, you believe in him first and foremost, uh, but fall short in how you act and how you live out your life. There is uh, nothing in scripture, some have tried to make Uh, this some kind of contradiction in Scripture where you're supposed to have one wife and the Scripture affirms that, you know, David and Solomon and so on had multiple wives and it's affirming it. It actually never affirms it. It's just giving an historical account of what happened. Just like, uh, you know, lying in Scripture or David's uh, going after Bathsheba or whatever it is, these are things that happen. And in fact, I would point out that it it tends to give credibility to Scripture that it includes even the negative on some of the people, even people that are in Hebrews 11, for example, which is known as the Hall of Faith. Those people that had great faith still fell short. You know, when it talks about um, David being a man after God's heart, what does that really mean? First of all, if you go to Acts 13.22, you read this amazing statement and testimony to, to David. It says, I've found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all my will. Now, that doesn't mean he hadn't sinned, but you have to take a look. Remember that God judges the motives of men's heart. So what is David's motives? If you, if you track his life, you will find that when he sinned, when he um, disobeyed God, he returned to God in utter repentance, confessed the sin, understood there'd be consequences to that sin, and embrace those consequences as as a, a just uh, result uh, of his sin. So he did that over and over again. When you read the Psalms he's written, you'll see that it'll pour his heart out to God. And sometimes the language is so demonstrative and warlike, but you always see him ending the Psalm with an absolute trust of God. But I will trust in the Lord for he has saved my soul. So um, consequently, you have to take a look at the totality of David's life and not just the rigid, I mean, he committed murder and sending Uriah to the front. Mm-hmm. He committed adultery, and it's, a child was born out of that and taken from him as a result. But look at how he responded to the conviction of either Nathan or God through Nathan, or um, and how he responded by um, repentance and then turning his life back Sometimes over to it took a prophet to point this out to him yeah. like Nathan had to do. You are that man, King, yep. right? All right. We'll take a little break. When we come back, lots more guy talk. We've got time for your question. Let me know what it is. 877-933-2484. 877-933-2484. Get your question on the show. Get it answered. Be the first one on your block to have a question answered on guy talk. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Bill Arnold. You might be the kind of person that goes to Paris and still listens to Faith Radio on the app. 
Or you might be more like the person that goes into the next room in your apartment and listens. The good news is, is using the app is just as easy in both places. Downloading the free app is crazy easy. Just text the word app to 877-933-2484 and click the link. And if you happen to be in Paris, there is a really nice little coffee shop not far from the Eiffel Tower that serves a really nice chocolate biscotti. We're back with Guy Talk, guys who talk. Let's see. Let me look around here. The studio looks like Jeff Redorn is here. <laughs> looks like Tom Parrish is here. And looks like Greg Borgon is here. So that's the team. We're all present. Yes, you are. Yes, you are. And uh, let me know what questions you have. <clears throat> Got a request that came in for uh, a woman, M. Grace. She's got some uh, pain in her neck and her back, and it's uh, really problematic. Gentlemen, let's pray. Let's do it. Father God in heaven, we just, in your name and in your authority, we just ask for healing upon M. Grace. Um, that you just take this pain away, heal her, Lord, in your name, but most of all, Lord, fill her with your peace that transcends all understanding as she trusts in you. And Lord Jesus, cast your shed blood over her because it is through the blood there is life and you are the healer. It is your blood that heals. So give her your peace, your healing, and speak to her, Lord, and let her know how much she's loved. Heavenly Father, you're the great physician. And there's nothing that's impossible for you. So we ask you to minister to her at this very moment. And Lord, pour your loving grace out upon her in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 All right, gentlemen, thank you so much for that. Uh, Here's a question. Mm, Last Thursday's verse was 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is God-breathed. I believe that, but what should I tell someone who says any book can claim whatever they want? In other words, it's self-referencing. Well, it may be self-referencing, but here's the unique part. The Bible written uh, over a period of 1,500 or 1,600 years, uh, going back thousands of years. And yet, I just read another article today, the archaeological information that affirms the validity of the Bible. And all the cities that the Old Testament talks about, they're discovering, are now real cities. These were real people. These were real circumstances. And so when you get this in Second Timothy, it... Uh, it sounds like, yeah, it's testifying to itself, but it's testifying to the reality of the power of the Bible. And most people that I run into, Bill, that don't, that question that or whatever, need to look deeper and take time with the Word of God and let it speak to them. And I think they'll discover it's amazing power. I, w- I would encourage the, the person who raised the question to uh, maybe can take a look at something like Evidence That Demands a Verdict by mm-hmm. Josh McDowell, who goes into great detail about how the Bible is inspired and validated by even historical criteria in terms of the number of copies, in terms of the kind of scrutiny it receives as is given other historical documents and makes a comparison to them. And you find that the Bible has been validated over and over again using the same uh, interpretation tools that are used to determine the historicity of, of the documents that we have today. You know, if I handed you a book and asked you who wrote that book, you're probably going to look at the cover and it's going to have an author's name on it. So with virtually any other book, 
it, it is self-describing, self-identifying as who wrote it, but the world tends to reject that when it comes to Scripture. Fine. Are there other proofs? Well, we've just mentioned some external proofs, historical evidence, archaeological evidence, its reliability, its internal evidences, uh, the consistency of the message, and so on. These were all written by eyewitnesses to Christ, the New Testament, of his life and death and resurrection and so on. I'd like to add one more component that shows that this is a divine document, and that is prophecy. Um, who knows the future but God? And if you, starting, there's hundreds and hundreds of prophecies in Scripture, Old and New Testament, many of which have already been fulfilled about people, events, places, kings, kingdoms, and so on. Well, who can predict with 100% accuracy the future? And as one commentator has said, it's like God's fingerprints on Scripture. Uh, I would also point out that Peter actually says of Paul's letters that he says, this is 2 Peter 3.16, he writes the same way in all his letters, speaking of Paul, speaking in them of these matters, his letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do other scriptures to their own destruction. Mm -hmm. So Peter actually called Paul's letters scripture. So there's just one more piece of evidence that we can uh, rely on that says we can trust these as the word of God. Nicely done. All right, gentlemen, uh, here's a question. Will we see the Holy Spirit when we get to heaven? Oh, I've never heard this question before. (laughs) We will definitely see God, Mm -hmm. right? Revelation 21 verse 3 says of the new heaven and new earth, it says that, and then the dwelling of God was is with man, and he will dwell with them. So right now, many places declares that no one has seen God except the one who came from God, and that is Jesus, but we one day will. He'll be the light, and he'll he'll be the temple in this new Jerusalem. I have never considered the Holy Spirit and seen the Holy Spirit. Well, when you take a look at who God is, which makes us different than, than Islam, is God is manifested in three persons— Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. When we're in heaven, I believe those are going to be combined. What we're going to see physically, I can't tell you exactly, other than it does reference that Jesus Christ is is seen physically. Even the marks on his wrist and and the uh, the spear wound in in the side, the scar from that. So we will see Christ, and uh, so Christ is as he as he said in Scripture, "I and the Father are one." And when Philip questioned and says, just show us the Father, and Jesus says to him, have I been with you so long and you still don't know me? Yeah. That's a pretty powerful scripture. Mm -hmm. I have a picture that I use. So when I teach, I use a lot of PowerPoint, but it's, uh, I used to be in plays, so I love the theater. So it's a stage. And on, on, you've got the big curtains up front, you've got the stage up front, you've got the spotlight. Behind the curtain is God the Father. He's like the producer. We don't see him. But he's orchestrating everything that's going on. Up in the balcony, you've got the spotlight, and that's the Holy Spirit who's putting the spotlight where it needs to be so that we spiritually wake up. And in the spotlight is the person of Jesus, because he is the one the scriptures emphasize over and over. When I get to heaven, I'm going to be thrilled just to see Jesus, because I know when I see him, I'm with the Father and I'm with the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Hmm. Interesting, Tom Parrish. Thank you for that illustration. I like it. All right. Can you talk about spiritual warfare and what it looks like in my day-to-day physical world? 
Are there evil spirits hovering around me all day? Do I have to spend my time rebuking and binding spirits? I just did a whole seminar on this over the weekend on spiritual warfare. Speaking about timely, huh? It uh, it was an interesting time. Uh, Good time. Good crowd. Bottom line is this. If you're a believer... The holy the the demons are not going to possess you, but they're going to make your life harass you, especially as you uh, become more and more the reflection of Jesus, the presence of Jesus. You speak for Jesus. They're usually though the way they come is not that there's going to be something appearing to you. Although I have worked with people that have seen things and experienced things, but in most cases, it's through temptation, it's through frustration. It's through bitterness. It's through anger. Somebody says something to you in the church and you don't like it and you get upset about it. I know that never happens in your church, Jeff, but once in a while it happens in mine. So, you know, you put that together uh, like that and there is a battle. For the unbeliever, they don't even recognize what's going on because the demons are after them. And I have seen so many of my high school friends who have now committed suicide, who got into tarot cards and palm readings and crystals and thought they were doing a good work until they started hearing voices that tell them, you know, you're worthless. Why don't you kill yourself? And three of my high school friends have done exactly that. Mm. So the demons are out there. But I think the thing we need to remember is the demons are not as powerful as we want to think they are. Because if Jesus lives in you, he who's in you is much more powerful than the demons. And I encourage people, always call upon the name of Jesus when you're tempted, when you're fearful, when you're frustrated. Call on his name in his shed blood and stand with him above everything else, and the demons will still be around until Jesus returns. But they don't have any power over you unless you give them power. Yeah. Ephesians chapter 6, uh, beginning with verse 10, is, is, is helpful. Finally, it says, be strong is what you're referring to. Mm-hmm. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you'll be able to stand against the, against the schemes of the devil. Here's the verse I'm referring to. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. And we need to be reminded that a follower of Jesus Christ cannot be possessed, but they can be oppressed. Mm -hmm. And so when you get these messages, and you've heard me say this on the show repeated times, Bill, the enemy will always remind you of the failures of your past— God wants to bring you to the victory of your future, and the battle is in the present, but God is God and Satan is not. So these first-person messages you're receiving are influenced by demonic influences and these spiritual forces. Our battle is spiritual, clearly. Paul describes it that way. We are to stand firm in it. Um, but we, we remember, we have God on our side. Hmm. And he actually says that he will fight this battle for us. I think the pictures of physical battles in the Old Testament where God does these miraculous kind of victories. Uh, In Exodus 14, God says, the Lord will fight for you. You just need to be still. Uh, Jehoshaphat in 2 Chronicles 20, uh, surrounded by an army and God miraculously defeats this army. I mean, Gideon and his battles, uh, the walls of Jericho, on and on, are representations physically of what we are experiencing spiritually. And this spiritual battle, I think we just trust in him. I don't know that we need to go around casting out demons out of everything Mm. or trust in the one who's the commander of the army of the host, who everything submits to him. All right, we'll be back after a short break. It's time for lots of guy talk. 
guys who talk. They're doing a great job. Send your questions over, 877-933-2484. Yesterday was an amazing day. We talked about forgiveness here at Faith Radio all day. If you'd like to uh, text the word FORGIVE to 877-933-2484, you'll start getting short texts designed to encourage you and help you on your journey to forgiveness. Questions for Guy Talk? 877-933-2484. Be right back. Time for Guy Talk, Energy and Enunciate. That's the... <laughs> Were we not already? No, you're doing a great okay, job. Good. I'm just, just great just job. Checking. Just checking. Just the energy level up for <laughs> a solid two hours of Guy Talk. So we got plenty of time for your questions. Send them over, 877-933-2484. You know, sometimes when you're a little tired, you don't enunciate as well. I was talking to myself at that point. That's a real problem, and I, I get to preach and teach like these guys do a lot, yeah. and uh, sometimes the words don't come out as well-pronounced as you'd like them to. <laughs> so true. All right, let's get back to the topic of spiritual warfare. Uh, dur- during the break, we had some interesting exchanges. Let's get them on the air. Well, I just remembered a story that a friend of mine mentioned. They were in Africa. They were presenting, I think they were presenting actually the Jesus film, uh, which is an, an older film on the life of Christ um, and his death, burial, and resurrection in order to present the gospel. And the guy who was going to go up to introduce it or give the gospel or something afterwards, all of a sudden couldn't speak. His tongue swelled up, his throat swelled up, and they had to take him off the stage and put somebody else up to take his place. And they realized there was three witch doctors in the last row casting curses mm. on this guy. Crazy. And so they prayed over him, and after about an hour, he was okay. Uh, but spiritual warfare is real, and sometimes you do have to take a direct stand against it. C.S. Lewis, the great writer, and I greatly admire like Christianity, he said the problem in Christianity is we go one of two directions. Either we don't believe there are demons, and so make ourselves subject to them in ways we never thought of, or we get overly infatuated with them and don't keep the focus on Jesus. Mm. And I've had to learn how to do that, and I have seen a lot of demonic in people. I have seen the power of—and I didn't go looking for this, guys. This was not my training. This is not what I was looking for, but it seemed to come to me. And I have learned over the years, and I teach people this all the time, that every Christian has the authority and the power to command the demons. And when you get into a situation where you really feel something's going on that's way beyond the normal or you feel—you watch people, different voices come out of them— I always use the name of Jesus, and I cover them with his shed blood. And up to this point in my life, for what it's worth, the demons have always obeyed. Yeah, when you take a look at um, Jesus Christ and the temptation of the desert, when we're talking about Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 10, you find out he was oppressed by the enemy. And the enemy tempted him in the three areas that we are all tempted in, the major tactic of the enemy— The first is pleasure. In this case, it was food. He tempted him with food. 
The second is possessions and materialism. He showed them all the kingdoms of the world and said he'd give them to them. And then the last is pride, which he appealed to him and saying, if you are the son of God. And so we're tempted in those three areas. But for us followers of Jesus Christ, we need to remember, and we're probably well conversant with the passage that talks about resist the devil and he will flee from you. But what we don't often reflect on is what immediately precedes that statement says, submit to God, then resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Hmm. This is an absolutely true story. I'm up at Hope Lutheran in North Minneapolis. I had done a series on spiritual warfare, like three sermons, and talking about these very things. And I had a young man who was probably 28 years old, uh, engineer, very smart guy, who I could, I could tell even during the series he wasn't buying this. He just didn't quite believe what I was saying. So anyway, um, I finished the series, and it's about three weeks later, and all of a sudden there's a knock at my door, you know, and the church is closed, but there's a knock, and I go open it up, and it's him. And he's bruised, and he's, he's got his nose doesn't look good. He's got a black eye. He's, he's kind of limping. He said, I got to talk to you. He said, <laughs> I didn't really buy what you were saying, but he said last night, I took my fiance home, and as I brought her up to the door, it's like she changed in front of me, and a voice came out of her. I I never heard it. It says, don't you dare come in here, and I thought she was kidding. I went in, and Pastor, I spent the next three hours in hell because she physically threw me against the wall. She was able to do things that terrified me beyond anything I've ever seen, and after three hours, she was back to her normal self, and she wanted to know what happened to me. And he said, I don't really know what's happened to me. How do I even begin to deal with this? So we spent time looking at Scripture, praying about this, and I told him, use the name of Jesus and his authority. And he said, I don't know what I'm going to do. I love this woman, but there's something going on inside of her I've never seen before, and I'm terrified. And to make a long story short, uh, they eventually did get married, and she had to go through some real release of those kind of things within her, and it was generational. Hmm. You know, whenever we talk about spiritual warfare, we should remind ourselves and and the listeners that greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. The victory has already been won. We are more Mm -hmm. than conquerors in Christ. He says he always leads us in victorious procession. We have overcome the world. We've overcome death uh, because we are in Christ Jesus who won the victory for us on the cross. So uh, let's just remember that uh, we are in his hands and nothing can ever change that. The, the preaching and the teaching of the gospel needs to be so powerful today that the demons themselves are terrified to come around the church and around the gospel. And I've run into people over and over and over who have mm. said, I have a voice that says, don't you dare go in there. You don't want to hear what they're saying in there. And then I've had others who say, I heard a voice say, go in. Wow. And... Uh, one of those couples turned out, he's now a pastor, and so is his, his wife does Christian ministry. Hmm. All right, next question, Revelation 21, verse 8. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery, fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. And the question is, will believers lose their salvation if they lie, like in Revelation 21.8? No. Once you are born again, I think Scripture declares that you are born again for all of eternity. You receive the Holy Spirit who will be with you for how long? Forever. 
what God is describing in Revelation 21 are the sinners, are the lost, are unbelievers. Uh, a believer in Christ Jesus is never described in those terms. And it's kind of like 1 Corinthians 16, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians 6 says kind of the same thing. He says, do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, uh, slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Well, we're probably in that list someplace, right? And if we we identify with something on that list, then we're not going to inherit the kingdom of God? Wait a minute. You got to keep reading. And it says this, and that's what some of you were, but you were washed you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You move in God's economy, in God's eyes, from being a sinner to being a saint. So what Revelation 21 is saying is that sinners will not inherit the kingdom of God because they haven't received the forgiveness through faith in Christ. And when you receive that forgiveness through faith in Christ, God says he blots it out, he puts it behind him, he it's, it's away from him. So he's not going to bring it up later on. And the other thing is, is that we're talking about patterns here. We're not talking about incidents where we lied or incidents where we committed a sin in one of these particular areas. He's talking about a pattern of, of life. And I would encourage, again, for us to, to refer to Scripture. In Ephesians 1, verse 13 and 14, we read, "...in him you also..." When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Interesting word, sealed, who is the guarantee, it says, of our inheritance until we require possession of it to the praise of his glory. The problem I see is there is so much doubt out there among Christians. And I hear this all the time. I get asked this question. There is a lot of doubt, and they don't know. And what you guys just quoted from Scripture, I love, absolutely accurate. I think what we need to do is help Christians understand that they have got to quit worrying. Usually when I get this question, it's usually because they had a son who was baptized at age 12 after he confessed Jesus, and now he's living a different lifestyle or whatever out, and they're trying to find an answer. The answer is, whether it's you or it's your son, the issue is, how do we keep bringing Jesus into the picture? Because he's the one who made the promise. He's the one that's a guarantee. And we need that emotional connection with Jesus that says, I am sealed. It is done. I, Yeah, I make mistakes, but I don't have to worry about that. Now, the danger with your son is that what I see people do is, oh, well, since he's saved, I don't have to worry about him. Well, is he going to be effective in this life? Is he going to be a disciple? And so you still go after him with the name of Jesus and his power so that he becomes the person he's meant to be. I think there'll be a lot of people in heaven that will be, I don't want to say this wrong, a disappointment to the kingdom of God because they never became what they were meant to be in the first place. And that's for all of us. We're not perfect, but we have a mission. There are so many passages in Scripture that declare that once you are saved, you are saved for all of eternity. Having believed, you were marked in him with the seal that's stated in Ephesians, like you talked about, mentioned earlier, Greg. I think Galatians is the other passage that says we have a a guaranteed inheritance. Um, Peter talks about that by faith, we are shielded by God's power until the coming of salvation that is ready to be revealed. Our salvation is kept in heaven for us. He gives us the Holy Spirit forever. First John ends with, I write these things to those who believe that you may know that you have everlasting life. We can know that we know that we can know that we have assurance 
of our salvation, assurance of our inheritance. And the moment you believe, Jesus says, you passed from death to life. Amen. I love that. I did too. All right, this lying question prompted another question. Do you uh, think that Ananias and Sapphira went to heaven? I was unclear as to whether they were actually Christians or not. You want well, to take a stab at that, Dr. Gray? Yeah, yeah. Orgon, you go first. All right, first of all, we don't know the heart in terms of the commitment they made to Jesus Christ. Um, uh, only God knows that, so it's kind of hard to answer that question. But if they did receive Jesus as their Savior and Lord, and this is what happened to them, just because you're saved doesn't mean you're not going to suffer consequences of disobedience. Mm-hmm. You'll receive God's forgiveness, but there may be consequences you have to endure. And so uh, them losing their lives because of, of lying about the sale of the property, um, they suffered the consequence in this particular case uh, of death, of uh, being ushered, if they were followers of Christ, into the presence of Christ, or if they had never received Christ, somewhere else. But the point is, is that it was the consequence of their disobedience, of their lie that they endured. This is debated, uh, obviously, theologically, were they saved or not saved? I will point out that Peter said, Ananias, how has Satan so filled you that you have lied to the Holy Spirit? Um, I tend to lean on the side that they probably weren't saved. Uh, but it, I think the point of the story is, well, one, I'm kind of glad this doesn't happen today, aren't you? I mean, yeah. if we were, if this was still going on in the church today, I think there'd be people dropping dead all over the place, I kind of like it as a pastor. Yeah. It might work well. <laughs> so, and remember, it wasn't their selfishness that's being condemned here. They were giving. They were just trying sure. to take more credit than what they should have yeah. done. Uh, and it seems it's a tough story because that's the penalty for being uh, somewhat deceptive on what you gave. You're still giving to the church. You still sold the property, but uh, they misrepresented how much they were actually how what their generosity really was. Uh, but this is a yeah, this is a controversial passage for sure. I've had many people come to me and say, "Am I really saved?" And I'll say, "Well, when did you open up your heart to Jesus? When did you repent? When did you ask Him, you know, to be your Lord and Savior?" And they will tell me. And I'll say, did you mean it? Well, yeah, I meant it at the time. Then you're saved. That's done. I think one of the dangers, whether it is a Lutheran church, Baptist church, Pentecostal, Assembly of God, what we have to be careful of always is that in most of the churches I've worked with, and I've worked with all cross-denominational, there is a tendency when especially one or two kids at age 12 receives Jesus at some kind of a little rally or whatever else, that suddenly the whole class receives Jesus. And the question is is not, have they all really given their heart to Jesus? The question is, have they really surrendered to him? And I don't think we ask enough questions along that line. And then later on, those are the same people I run into who are saying, oh, I don't know if I'm really saved or not. And then I say to them, did you really mean it? I don't know. Well, let's do it again now. If you'd like to do it now, we can do it right now. And I prayed with a lot of people to receive Jesus. But I think that we always have to be wise in putting the emphasis back on what Jesus has done and that we're trusting in him, not in ourselves. My wife has this great saying. She says, how can you backslide if you haven't first front slid? <laughs> <laughs> and so the idea is, is that there, sh- there ought to be fruit befitting repentance. Yeah. It may not appear immediately, but over the course of time, there should be some evidence, some fruit that emerges from that conversion experience. 
One thing we're doing at our church is that, you know, if you have phones now, they have great recorders on them. So we're taking every older person, Christian in the church, when they have time, to come into my office. They sit down for 10 minutes, and they share how they came to faith in Jesus Christ. Mm. And we're keeping those in an archive. And they've all agreed, we can play that at their funeral. That we can put it up on the screen and play that. Here's what Bill said about how he believed in Jesus. And we've done that a couple of times. Now, let me tell you, there's not a dry eye in the place when it's done. I bet. All right, we'll take a break. Come back. Lots more guide talk. Let me know what question you have. 877-933-2484. Lots of uh, time to answer your question. Jeff Redorn, Tom Parrish, and Greg Borgond are my guests, my power panel The ones sitting around the studio looking at me right now. So we'll be right back. Faith Radio and Afternoons with Bill podcasts are available because of listener support. If you are a supporter, thank you so much. Becoming a supporter today by visiting myfaithradio.com. That's pretty happy-go-lucky music from Guy Talk, from guys who talk. If you say so. It Thank feels you a so little much. bit like a 70s uh, you know, sitcom or it something. Does. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't it? It, a little, it, a little, it does. All right. Great questions coming in. 877-933-2484. My adult daughter has mental illness, ADHD, depression, and anxiety. She says she's a believer but does not read her Bible, attend church, or do much of anything else to grow in her faith. She also lives a sinful lifestyle, substance abuse, sexual immorality, foul language. Do the mentally ill get a pass of any sort for a single for a sinful lifestyle? How accountable should a family member hold her? Wonderful question. Um, this is something that we need to, to struggle with. I don't know in the sense I can't make a judgment one way or the other. The Lord will deal with her individually. As a parent, what you want to do is give her every opportunity you can to get right with Jesus. Even with mental illness, ADHD, and I've worked with all of these, um, they are not so insurmountable that people cannot respond differently. And I think that too often in our society, everything today is a mental illness, which our society tells us people have no control over. There's mm-hmm. nothing they can do. First of all, I don't believe that for a moment. And I've worked with a lot of doctors and nurses, and I've worked with this. I believe it is much. it goes much deeper than that. What we need to do, and especially for your daughter, if she doesn't read the Bible, with her ADHD, she may not be a visual learner. Or she may need an auditory Bible where you give her one that's, mm. that's being spoken and encourage her to do that. Or give her Christian music that is kind of down her alley in terms of the music she likes, but has... Christian lyrics that are biblical with them because she's not getting exposure and I don't think she's going to read it. Maybe she can't, but here's another way to do it. You know, you can take somebody to the doctor, but you can't force them to take the medication. No. And so consequently, you can expose them to the Word of God. You can encourage them to read the Word for themselves, whether it's auditory or it's visually, but you can't force them to do that. And so sometimes people live in um, their whole Christian experience in infancy rather than adulthood, not progressing, not growing, not being changed into the likeness of Christ. And so when you when we talk about mental illness, I'm no expert in this area, either, but I see it along a continuum. Mm-hmm. 
there's mental illness that is terribly debilitating. It makes it impossible to respond logically or rationally to any given situation. But there are various grades of mental illness, as you were talking about, that give you greater and greater opportunity to do the right thing, even in the midst of it. So it appears, it depends on where it appears, I believe, on that continuum of mental illness. Yeah, and the, in the question, the listener seems to indicate that this person is capable of reading their Bible, and so they're probably further up that scale. Uh, but you're right, we don't know. We don't, we're, we're, this is not my area of expertise either. But Scripture has a lot to say about how we should treat other believers. We should encourage them. We should equip them. We should teach them. We should point these things out to them, uh, build them up. Um, and none of them says, uh, but only if you know they have the capacity of or an IQ of such and such, right? Mm. So I think that you continue to follow Scripture, teach these things, pray for them, build them up, encourage them, just as you describe moving from infancy to adulthood in Christ. That's what we should be encouraging mm-hmm. all the people in our lives to do. Mm-hmm. Even people that I worked with with a mental illness, Jesus still has this way of getting through to them. He's not hampered by the mental illness. Hmm. It's not a, that Christianity is not just a logical process. Hmm. It is a spiritual process. Mm-hmm. And I think that what we fail to understand is that when we come into the presence of people, sons or daughters like this, or people around us, instead of trying to fix them, which is something I'm very guilty of, we need to keep challenging them with invitations and opportunities to experience the love of Jesus. And I have seen people that have been deeply mentally ill, I mean, deeply, on all kinds of medication. And over a period of time, with the right people, the right opportunities, whatever, become relatively stable people. I'm not saying that they're perfect, but they're relatively stable. And they can articulate the love of Jesus and how he's changed their heart from the inside. So I don't think, as here's the, what I don't like. We have a tendency to give up in Christianity on the mentally ill as though we can't do anything. And I'm saying we can do everything. Mm-hmm. They still need to hear about Jesus. All right. Next question, gentlemen. How do you know what's from God and what's just my thinking or voice? There are two things in Scripture that I like. Number one, first of all, is this really the Lord speaking to you? Well, you'll find affirmation in the Word of God in its context. You just don't go grab a verse and say, that applies to me. The second thing is this. Jesus said, no testimony is valid in your law except there are two witnesses. And I always encourage people, because I've had people, I've worked in a charismatic church, I've had people come forward, I just had this word from the Lord. And I say, great, you know, and I'd like to hear it after the service. No, I'm supposed to share it right now. But Hmm. Jesus Hmm. said, there have to be two. Is there any, then I will say, is there anybody else here who just received a word from the Lord? And can we compare those before we share it with the body? And in all my experience, that's only happened once to where there was a confirmation and it was the same word from two different people that had not been talking. The rest of the time, I don't know who it's from. And I always tell them, you talk to me, but we're not going to put it in front of the body till we know. I like that word affirmation, right? I've had a couple people over my life come up to me and says, God has told me to tell you. Yeah. And then I'm supposed to do something or whatever. And it's and my response has always been, well, when God tells me the same thing, sure. then I'll know it's from God. Um, but I think when – I've had a t- number of times – I've never heard God's voice audibly. He's never appeared visually. I've never had a vision or, or dream, although maybe a dream at one point in time in my life. 
But I've definitely heard from God in my uh, while I'm reading Scripture, one, from other believers, two, from experiences. I have ex- had experiences where I know God spoke to me, not audibly, like I said. Um, and so I think as a believer, uh, you know, you got to be careful that make sure it's not your own voice that is directing you. But I, I don't. I think when it's from God, I think we can know it's from God. We need to be like the Bereans. And so anytime we think we hear the voice of God or we hear God's leading, and we need to check it out as you're talking about with Scripture to validate it. There's the double affirmation right there. And so if it's not in Scripture, and especially if it's in opposition to Scripture, it's not from God. He's not going to violate his own word. I would encourage uh, Christians out there to surround themselves, if you're a husband, surround yourself with two other men who really walk with the Lord, and you can trust them. If you're a woman, surround yourself with two women. I'm very blessed as a pastor. We established a board of elders several years ago, and I trust these three guys with my life. I bring to them what I'm going to preach on on Tuesday, telling them what I'm going to be talking about and where it's going for Sunday. I submit even what I'm going to teach. If I think I've got a word from the Lord, I first give it to them and and say, are you receiving anything? Do you have any direction here? If I don't get anything back from them, I don't do it. And I think if we would do that with our friends, if, if like we got the four of us here, if I knew that every time I thought I heard from the Lord, I know I could bring it before you, you would listen sincerely, you would say, give me some time to discern this, but you would come back and tell me the truth. I love it. Oh. I'm getting a word from the Lord that we have to wrap up this hour. <laughs> <laughs> do you guys Is agree? that confirmed guys, by somebody yeah, else? Agree. I don't see producers. that here. <laughs> yes. well, look, look, look in the word there. Oh, so second gonna, Arnold. Yeah, yeah second Arnold 2.9. All right, we're going to, we got hour two just ahead. So lots more guy talk and there's great questions. You're just sending in the best questions today. Keep it coming. 877 877- 933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. I'd love to hear your question, and we'll get it on the air, and we'll get it talked about. How about that? Jeff Redorn, Tom Parrish, Greg Borgon are my guests. So glad these guys are making the commitment to come here and be with us on Thursdays. I love this time together. It's just hanging with my, my buddies and talking about Jesus. Doesn't get much better than that. Again, 877-933-2484. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.